Yay. Okay. Um, hello. Khadija <laughs> we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Today is Thursday, October 15th, 2020. It's approximately 12.03 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm here with my co-host, Alam Adel. What's up, Alam? It took a it took a great deal of difficulty, but I'm, I'm glad we could all be here together. <laughs> and could you say uh, which pronouns you use in a little oh, bit? Oh yes, of course. Yeah. I'm I'm Elon Mandel. I'm a PhD student at Cornell Tech, working in the Future Autonomy Research Lab. I use he/him pronouns. Thank you. And this is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman. I'm the director of We Be Imagining, a project of Columbia University's Insight Center and the American Assembly. Shout out to them for funding this. We appreciate it. And I'm really um, thrilled today to have on a series of scholars discussing the food, food supply chain and food justice issues. First, we have today Divya Sharma. She is an assistant professor at the Science Policy Research Unit, University of Sussex. Her work focuses on post-colonial rural transformations, mapping changing landscapes of work, agroecology, and the politics of sustainability in India. We also have Barbara Van Dyck. Van Dyck. She is an associate professor at Coventry University in the Center for Agroecology, Water and Resilience, and Food Sovereignty and Agroecology Organizer in Belgium. Her work in political agroecology sits at the intersection of political ecology, agroecology, and science and technology studies. And finally, we have Carrie Freshor. She's an assistant professor at the University of Washington in the Geography Department. Freshor received her PhD from Cornell in Developmental Sociology where she published her dissertation, Ain't No Life for a Mother, Racial Capitalism and the Crisis of Social Reproduction. Fresher joins us from the U.S. South, where much of her research starts. In addition to being a Southerner and professor, Fresher is an adoptee and an Asian American, a labor activist and learning abolitionist. Thank you to all three of you coming onto the show. Um, and so I like to start with everyone's academic bio, but maybe we can go in the reverse order and each of you could say a little bit about who you are in your own words. And if I mispronounced your name or uh, you have different pronouns than I uh, uh, articulated here, please share that as well. Thanks, Khadija. Thanks, Alan. My name's Carrie Freshour, so just like it sounds. I know people try to make it fancy. Uh, yeah, I'm from Georgia. I'm, an, as you said, an adoptee. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a child of 12. I uh, grew up in a Methodist household, about as, I don't know, typical Southern as you can be in many ways. I'm now in Seattle, but before that I was in Mississippi at the at Delta State University. And I uh, continue to work with lots of comrades and friends down in, in the Delta. Thanks for having me. Cool. Thanks so much. Uh, Barbara, would you like to go next? Hi, everybody. I'm so glad to be here tonight. So I'm Barbara Van Dijk. I'm working at Coventry University at the Center for Agriculture, Water and Resilience. And uh, I am in my research, I'm, I'm really focusing a lot on, um, on innovation and, and food and farm technology, where I'm asking questions on, on innovation and progress. Let's call it broadly. We will I guess have time to go into that, but I am mostly based also in Belgium, where I am an organizer in the food sovereignty and agroecology movements. So in that movements, we are working for food sovereignty, and we are trying to connect uh, peasant organizations and more broadly social health actors. Thank so, you. Yeah, and Divya, if you could say a little bit about yourself and your work. Sure. Thanks, Khadija and Ilan. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Divya. Um, 
I'm currently working at the University of Sussex and the UK has been my home now for the last three years. But before that, I was at Cornell University and for several years as a PhD student. And I grew up and spent most of my early life in Delhi. A lot of my work has been based in India, particularly in regions both in the north and in the south. Uh, more recently. And I've been thinking a lot about food and agriculture and changes in sort of rural work landscapes, particularly gender division of labor in the context of farming. But most of my work has been in collaboration with rural farmers movements uh, in India. And so a lot of what I'm going to maybe share today is comes from, you know, their sort of insights and learning through organizing around agroecology and sustainable agriculture. Listen, I really appreciated your talk, uh, Mobilization for Socio-Ecological Sustainability um, in Post-Green Revolution Punjab. And so for a lot of our listeners who maybe are thinking about these issues around optimization, efficiency, and extractive labor practices may not be really that familiar with kind of the particularities of your work. So if you could kind of maybe share just one example, that would be great. A lot of my PhD research was uh, based in Punjab, which is in Northwest India, and has been the site of, you know, this project called the Green Revolution, which started in the 1960s with the introduction of hybrid seed varieties of wheat and rice and groundwater irrigation, agrochemical intensification to, to basically produce enough food for the country in the post-colonial period. And what I've been doing there is sort of uh, collecting and assembling oral histories, particularly with uh, farmers, uh, men and women in their 70s, 60s, 80s, and how just sort of I'm trying to understand how they remember that time uh, and the changes all of those technologies brought about. Since the last two or three decades, that region has now become an exemplar, if you will, of ecological degradation caused by ag- agrochemical intensification. So there's been kind of, you know, this narrative, there's always been this narrative of pr- uh, Punjab being the breadbasket and a, a region inhabited by progressive farmers, which has now started to shift to uh, people talking about all kinds of problems, including uh, high incidence of cancer, uh, which is sometimes attributed to the use of pesticides, de- degradation of soils, uh, contamination of uh, water, etc. But there's also been a very active sort of social movement that's been working there since the early 2000s to address some of these problems and mobilize farmers to sort of move towards more natural forms of farming. One of the interesting, talking about connections, one of the interesting things uh, or stories that might be good to start with is from someone who I've been talking to, an 80-year-old farmer who who was telling me how since uh, since they started using DDT, which was banned in the U.S. in 1972, but, you know, was uh, continued to be used in countries like India for, for tackling pests. This, uh, this particular pest called boll weevil, which is colloquially known as the American bollworm, 
became so widespread in the cotton crop that it kept sort of destroying their crops year after year. And how, you know, that for her was kind of symptomatic of the big uh, shift in their, not just in, in farming, but in their everyday lives. And at the end of that sort of uh, story, she sort of joked about it and said, you know, the American bollworm came to us uh, through the British. And now my grandsons are, are sort of driving taxis in the US. And so they have, so we have imported the American bollworm that has sort of destroyed our soils and crops. And my grandsons have left to look for uh, their livelihoods elsewhere. So I always think of that as a kind of really interesting way to think about how our food systems and our lives are structured through these global sort of connections that we don't really often think about. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking about when you were saying there was this kind of post-colonial question about how to feed these rural areas that was kind of the premise in which uh, a lot of these uh, so-called modernizing forms of agriculture using all these pesticides that are even banned in the U.S. were implemented. And kind of contrasting that to the poultry workers that you're focusing on, Carrie, is that, you know, there's this like tremendous extraction to produce. Like, I love this focus on like birds per minute you know, almost like words per minute and this push to get people to process like 175 birds per minute. And the the difference is like, do we really need to be eating so much meat? And I'm just wondering and thinking about the the comparison or connection points between different areas in the global South. How do you guys kind of think about the tension between, I guess, people being being pushed to produce all of this food that's not even necessary to begin with uh, versus maybe in the in rural India there being a lack of food that that needs to be distributed to the population. I don't know if that completely makes sense, but I was just thinking about the amount of meat that we're eating in America and is this even necessary to begin with? Like where do you begin with that question? Yeah, Khadija, I like that question. It's a good one. I think Divya, I think of Divya's work often and what she was sharing about the use of pesticides mobilized against this American sort of insect or, or um, the boll weevil, right? And this was something that farmers in the U.S. South were dealing with in the region where I work in, in North Georgia back in the 30s. And it was actually their response to the boll weevil through the mobilization of particular pesticides across the U.S. South, right, was also, and this is some work that my friend Brian Williams does, he calls it a form of agro-industrial racism, um, in that it was used not only to clear these pests, quote-unquote pests, but it also um, had these sort of linked effects in really impacting people who lived nearby, so near these giant sort of monocropped uh, plantations. And these were often uh, tenant farmers and sharecroppers. In the Delta, these were mostly Black families who lived and worked on these larger plantations. And, and so it kind of also, not only is it transforming the way we produce, say, that monocrop cotton, but also, and larger ecologies, but also people's ability to just grow their own food. I mean, that's that's not directly linked to the poultry issue, but I think... In some ways, you know, a lot of people don't know this about the poultry industry in the South, but it's the largest, it's the largest um, ag product produced uh, across the entire region. And it's Georgia is the leading state producer of poultry. And if it, if it were its own country, it'd be the seventh in the entire world. 
but Georgia, in Georgia, we can trace the lineage of poultry production directly to cotton production and therefore to plantation agriculture and the transatlantic slave trade. I mean, I think that's sort of common sense knowledge, like when people are trying to think about our food system and its historical roots. But there's this really, really long trajectory we can trace it back to the plantation. And so I say all that to think about these speed ups now today, right, the, the BPM, birds per minute, and this in continual drive to like increase production. Um, but it's rooted in this longer historical logic that Bri Brian Williams, again, and I are working on this paper to think about that connection, right, of the plantation to the poultry plant today and how the how the logic of the plantation as not only a form of like increasing production but controlling and confining people um, con controlling people's mobility controlling and trying to stomp out any fugitive activity and freedom movements that were occurring right um, is a logic that continues in this need to increase production through birds per minute and I'll, and today you know many of your listeners might know this but even with COVID-19 and even with all these plants becoming hot spots across the country, um, there, there's a new attempt to increase that line speed from 140 where it's capped right now to 175, um, which just, is, it seems so illogical, but just reflects like how our country, who our country really values and why we'll place the consumption of really cheap meat over and above human life, right? And your question about, do we really need to eat all this meat? I mean, that's, that's a, our relationship to animals and our, uh, the rapid increase in our consumption of meat is, is profit driven, right? And so when I'm teaching students in this food and ag class, often students are like, you know, it's, it's biological that we eat meat, we need meat, we have this drive to eat meat, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also productive as part of our political economy. I mean, there, there are there are moments throughout the poultry industry's history where production has been ramped up and it's been fueled by the war economy and the post-war in World War II, right? When um, the U.S. Uh, uh, Dep Department of Defense and basically bought up all of the poultry produced in seven counties in Northeast Georgia and that allowed them to really speed up production and um, vertically integrate. And then there are other moments, right, like in the 90s, when McDonald's worked with actually labs at Cornell and UGA to develop a chicken nugget, right? And that, that was another push where we actually ramped up line speed. So there's a state capital sort of nexus um, that has sh shaped how we eat meat and how much we eat, right? So it's not always, it's not a natural phenomenon, um, but it's actually a political and economic uh, process. I don't know that this is directly related, but I think a lot about how the the maintenance of kind of like, like, quote unquote, like cheap luxuries, right? Like, even if you are facing various forms of, of oppression in, in your own life, right? The fact that like, you can go and like, you know, like get cheap, affordable meat has this has this effect of like, tampening down, you know, I don't want to say like revolutionary spirit, but like there's right, like there's a sense of like the the French Revolution being about bread. As long as you can kind of maintain this presence of like cheap, affordable meat, people have these small luxuries in their lives that allow them to kind of justify and ignore various other forms of of injustice that they experience all the time. I don't know that this is a fully fleshed out thought, but uh, flesh. Well, that's a weird pun, um, but. But I was wondering if if this is something you see in your work as well, or if I'm totally off base. 
Yeah, I guess I think about, I mean, I think about your question in terms of social reproduction, right? And how racial capitalism structures how we even imagine meeting our basic needs, like eating, <laughs> right? And so it's, I think that, you know, you can think of cheap food as being a way to maintain cheap wages, right? In some sense. So there's a very sort of maybe simplistic Marxist way of thinking about cheap, the role of cheap meat. And then maybe you're thinking of some psychological effects of that, right? But I also think that, you know, it's pretty, it's, it's kind of pervasive in how the construction of cheap meat is also, has also been so uh, racialized and gendered, right, in our country. I'll just take Don Tyson, who's someone I love to hate on, who's a uh, who's pretty prominent figure in the poultry industry. It's the second largest poultry company in our country. And he is really seen as an innovator in the production of processed chicken, right? So most of us, most Americans didn't really access or eat really processed birds until the 1990s. And that's because of some of his work um, around the chicken nugget and his ability to speed up, really push and transform production through vertical integration and other means. But, you know, he was, he was, his logic in, in thinking about food and food dumping in a sense on poor communities, he practiced the production of really overly processed food and through um, sharing those first, he tried to share this like gizzard burger experiment with communities in South Central LA, right? <laughs> and this is in the nineties. Oh. Um, and so he tested these, and he got, he, they didn't, people didn't like them, right? But he was like, oh, I'll just test them over on these black and brown communities far, on the other side of the country. And then he also, after that flopped, he had to test them in prisons in Alabama because he was uh, friends with some of the leaders in the state DOC. And so I think this just kind of speaks to the logic of cheap meat and cheap dumping, which, you know, not only happens to poor communities in our country, um, but we can also think poor and racialized communities in our country, but we can also think about how it happens in the global south. And maybe Divya and Barbara could speak to that a little bit better, <laughs> more clearly than I can. Yeah, maybe one thing I uh, could uh, pick up on here, like, so one of my interests in this whole uh, food systems or how I got really into uh, food systems are potatoes. And um, I think that like what Liv what uh, Divya was saying earlier, no, about like how food is uh, something that's so great to uh, understand connections uh, through different places in the world. And so, like when I hear uh, Kerry talking about like uh, the meat industry, I I don't know so much about the meat industry. But so what I do see from being located in Belgium, where for example, it would be more through the the fodder, like what these animals are eating. And so then if you look at the the industrial farms that are around the ports in 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 of Antwerp or Ghent in Belgium, so all the the food for these uh, pigs and poultry that's being bred there is mainly coming from the Americas, right? And a lot of it is like uh, genetically modified soy from soy from South America, for example. So like this um, food, like in a minute, you are in different places over the world and looking at these like logistical chains that are 
developing around uh, cheap food and cheap dumping, as uh, as Gary was mentioning, for example, in the case of uh, potatoes, like recently with uh, like the COVID pandemic, it has ha- have uh, it had a huge impact on 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 the food chains, and it actually has been in a way. Uh, spectacular in the way it revealed the vulnerability of this global food change and in the case of potatoes like after a few weeks you could see there were like pictures emerging of like mountains of potatoes that couldn't be processed because of uh, mcdonald's restaurants being closed and so part of it is then like the part of the the surplus of, of what wasn't being transformed for the fast food restaurants was either through state subsidy being sold to the food banks in Belgium because a lot of people going hungry. So like the system of then having poor people being fed of the on the garbage of, of the industry becomes so clear there. And uh, a second way of getting rid of some of the potatoes is then by dumping them in South America at that time when the, the moment of harvest was uh, going on in South America, which again is like kind of insane and especially thinking that potatoes historically they come from South America right so yeah I don't know uh, Divya if you would wanted to talk more into dumping in the global side um, yeah I mean thanks so I think both of you raised a lot of different issues which are connected but also going back to Khadija's original point I think you know this narrative of um we need to produce more food and more cheap food to uh, feed growing populations, etc. is so old and has been kind of debunked, and yet it continues to kind of have this sway on people's imaginations. Instead of you know talking about issues of redistribution of food, food waste, but also uh, monocultural production of cheap food instead of what are the kind of alternative ways of eating and growing food uh, that have that might have led to a sort of not just sort of more better ecological outcomes but also uh, more social justice focused ways of sort of social reproduction so it's not just sort of meat for instance going back to uh, punjab you know it was monocultures of wheat and rice and partic- very a very narrow set of hybrid varieties of wheat and rice that kind of had a drastic detrimental impact not just on the kind of material landscape but also on people's health and so and and now we know that you know those those very narrow set of wheat and uh, rice hybrid varieties displaced a lot of other things that were a part of people's diets so lentils millets which 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 kind of also maintained the balance of that ecosystem and a lot of the resources that went into uh, monocultural production of wheat and rice partly because it was pushed through by american uh, intervention of you know organizations like the rockefeller foundation etc as well as the us government who kind of put pressure on the Indian government and scientists at the time to adopt a very particular mode of agro-industrial production. But the kinds of things that they displaced from those ecologies that were a part of people's diets, those kinds of systems could have also been uh, uh, developed through research, etc. And those same resources could have gone into those kinds of 
more uh, robust, regionally, ecologically suitable crop production and, uh, you know, organizing the organization of the food system. Um, So in a way, these kinds of narratives of, you know, we need cheap food and we need only this particular kind of cheap food uh, to meet hunger, etc., are really powerful narratives that kind of erase all of these other alternative ways of organizing the food system, which would have been much more socially just, but also uh, ecologically sustainable, that are displaced uh, from our political and policy agendas. Uh, And that's the kind of work that, you know, a lot of the movements, agroecology movements, and uh, some of the peasant organizations that Barbara mentioned and the ones she works with are trying to sort of reinvigorate and introduce and sort of introduce that idea of that there were and are these alternatives uh, that we need to sort of start thinking about much more seriously. Maybe picking up on on uh, what Livia was talking about, just about like this erasure of diversity, it's like also something to think further. If we think about food, uh, we are thinking about living organism now, we are thinking about life. Um, and so this erasure of possibilities and erasure of diversity is also something that is like happening uh, through the agro-industrial uh, food production. No? So when uh, Divya is talking um, about r- rice, uh, for example, but we could talk about any crops or even about uh, the genetic diversity of, of animals. Um, so like with the... With the global organization of these food chains like in uh, the food production being based on these uh, large-scale monoculture farms we are losing out in diversity in in many ways diversity in, in cultural practices but also diversity in terms of biodiversity uh, of uh, different species but also in agrobiodiversity like different like yeah diversity within uh, our food systems and that is actually something that is crucial if you are thinking about potentially or the potential of 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 uh, of a healthy or a livable like let's say like a livable planet it's crucial that uh, we take care of this of this diversity why the food system is actually doing exactly the opposite it's like erasing diversity by uh, treating life as as kind of dead objects. And I think that connects to what you were saying earlier, uh, Khadija, in terms of like um, the linguistics that's being used or the speeding up in, for increased production. You could also see like the, the the type of logics that are being embedded in, in, in the food technologies today. They are very much based into computer language, for example. And it's like looking at, at life in a way that actually ignores life and and the principle of, of of living organisms so i think that's also something to think about when we're talking about uh, food and and food change for example in the in the case of of seeds discussion that i'm following quite a lot um there is a lot of uh discussions these days about uh, gene editing so it's like intervening in in the um, the genetic base of of living organisms to make genetically modified organisms we call them and to talk about that we are talking about like cutting uh copy paste uh using genetic scissors so all these kind of 
words that are thrown in there that would make us believe that it's something like um, not only very precise, but something that can be controlled, not technologies that are controlling this life. And so this whole uh, logic of control-based technologies and introducing them into farming, I think that's like exactly, it's about killing life, basically, and with all the consequences uh, we see today. I was reading some report on kind of GMO Monsanto seeds as patented seeds versus, you know, non-patented seeds. And they use the term open source seeds, which I thought was was funny. Maybe maybe I'm very ignorant to something, but I, I thought for most of history, those were just known as seeds. Um, and it's funny how even on the activism side, it, it kind of still brings in the, the logics of the, the logics and the language of the kind of like uh, centers of power, right? These kind of tech techno terminologies yeah that's very interesting that you're bringing that up um, because indeed like so the open source seat is a direct reference to that and i think it's like both interesting and problematic possibly there is something interesting in the sense that like we i think in the in the agroecology movement we have been learning a lot from the the tech activists and like the 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 ways of resisting against privatization so in that sense like there is also a connection to, I think, how activists are learning from each other in the way they organize. But then there is obviously like the idea, like just to uh, use language from the the corporate sector. Is that what is that what, how we want to organize? And I think open source seed is just one way of referring to a much broader organizing around seeds like you would have like for example peasant seeds would be a way of of referring peasant autonomy in reproducing seeds because what you're referring to and and the problem of patenting of seeds it mainly relates to the the disposition of farmers no from their seeds like uh, one of the basic needs actually to do to do farming uh, which becomes impossible by uh, patenting seeds. I I see this a little bit also in some of Divya's work as well, where you're talking about these these demands for a, a uh, what was it called an evergreen revolution or a second green revolution, where you know they kind of acknowledge the the ways that these things were flawed, but you know still apply the same logics and terminology. Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting. Um issue actually and you know just even the language of uh, the second green revolution or the evergreen revolution it kind of presumes that we don't have to change uh, you know some of the political economy structures and institutions uh, and infrastructures instead we just need to do some more technological tinkering to you know move from uh, using uh, groundwater to sort of drip irrigation, for instance, and that would somehow resolve the kind of crises uh, that we are facing. And uh, I mean, I think a key example of that, for instance, is, you know, the idea that you can actually grow uh, organic food, uh, but you can grow it with this by employing the same uh, monocultural agro-industrial logic, which means that it's only accessible uh, at premium prices to a few elite classes and in India it's what's happening is really interesting because some of these areas uh, that were sort of known as the bread baskets and you know produced 
massive amounts of grain that contributed to national food stocks and are now sort of on the verge of uh, degradation. So you need a lot more agrochemicals to grow the same amount of food. In a way, the government is basically saying, okay, let's move away from these areas to the so-called backward regions or you know regions which were where the green revolution didn't actually happen but you still have healthy soils there and uh, people have been sort of farming with low inputs etc and those regions are going to kind of become the hot spots of this second green revolution or evergreen revolution but but the logic there of course is that you know you you degrade spaces and lives and then you move on to another site uh, so it's kind of displacing uh, the costs and then kind of just moving on, which which is quite central to what Barbara was talking about in terms of sort of technologies of uh, control, this idea of sort of controlling both nature, but also uh, human lives. Uh, and I think Carrie's work also speaks a lot to that in terms of how technologies of control then also pan out in the way... Um, you know, labor is disciplined in all of this. That's another sort of site of displacement of these uh, costs in in uneven ways. So some people end up bearing the burden of uh, these technologies and ma- production of food on, on these massive scales. Uh, so maybe, uh, I don't know, Carrie, if you want to jump in, but it. I mean, I think we really you know, that that kind of displacement of costs really becomes visible as we start focusing on some of these uh, issues in the food system through the lens of labor. I just had a, a, a somewhat topical non sequitur question, which is, have you guys seen Sorry to Bother You? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Divya and Barbara, if you haven't seen it, it's like a dystopian film by um, one of the members of the coup, Boos Riley, that should really be a documentary on Amazon. Um, it was quickly like rushed uh, out of theaters. But basically, there's this like pseudo Amazon um, and the, the protagonist is this like uh, black male, Keith Stanfield, who's working in a call center and then rises to the heights by using his white voice. Um <clears throat> And I was just thinking about that in this conversation uh, regarding linguistics and just connecting it to uh, what Barbara was mentioning in terms of CRISPR and gene editing. And so like the interesting labor that tech does and when you label something as innovation is that if you went to the poultry factory and you just said, you know, we are going to recreate, you know, uh, feudalist uh, labor practices like sharecropping where we're like underpaying black farmers for working on land that is rented, even though that they deserve the land, et cetera, et cetera, that wouldn't have a lot of currency. But when you say innovation and optimization, like people kind of run with it. And one of the things that's fascinating about the CRISPR thing, I actually saw this in a documentary, but the Atlantic had a piece about Kevin Esfeld, who... um, pitched to Martha's Vineyard, this very like wealthy vacation area, that he should be able to use CRISPR um, to create like mice with these knockout genes where uh, they could no longer um, pass on Lyme disease. And basically there was a lot of community pushback, but I just thought that was an interesting example because it's unsurprising, right? When they push the the cheap meat to incarcerated people who have very little uh, political agency to, to resist that. 
but the idea that when you package it within this um this 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 brand of like innovation efficiency and modernity that then you can kind of attempt to sell it as like a luxury a luxury good um and so to me that's like part of the the labor that this kind of language of innovation and open source and et cetera does but i wanted to kind of um transition a little bit i guess one of my questions is like one of the themes that i saw across all of your work is that the this kind of irrationality of the so-called rational like neil taylor labor practices in which both the food is becoming more diseased through monoculture and then you know generating uh more uh, uh like attracting different kinds of insects that require more pesticides that are then um, having people being exposed to more pesticides and then become have greater uh, rates of disability or like in the poultry factory, uh, how you talk about, Carrie, with greater rates of disability and even people's office off hours, they're having to take aspirin and Icy Hot basically for all of their pains. And so I was just wondering if you guys could speak a little bit to um, kind of the relationship between disability and what you're seeing in your work and also how that has to do with agency. Um, because a lot of times people just see this from like a deficit perspective. And so if we're thinking about social justice as movements, um, how do we integrate this understanding of the rates of disability and kind of in, in the resistance? Um, I mean, I, I, I can try to sort of address that partly because actually the movement that I've been, uh, sort of working within Punjab is quite interesting in the sense that they make health uh, the centerpiece of their mobilization uh, for moving to more sustainable agroecological practices. What's um, the name? And, sorry? What's the name? So we can shout them out. Oh, yeah, sorry. Kethi, uh, the movement's called Kethi Virasat Mission, um, and they've been around uh, since the early 2000s. Um, in particularly working in the cotton belt of uh, Punjab. Um, and what's really interesting is around the, because is um, mobilization around health also kind of enables them to uh, reach out to, uh, you know, landowning farmers, landless workers, uh, groups who otherwise have, uh, are in kind of more uh, antagonistic relations with each other. Uh, and I mean, there's no doubt that certain uh, laboring communities have uh, have had to, you know, bear the impacts of uh, this kind of agro-industrial um, monocultures much more than others. And landowning farmers did benefit, uh, at least at the peak of the Green Revolution, in monetary terms. Uh, but what has happened with uh, the the consequences of that agro-industrialization becoming starkly visible in terms of health uh, is that it does kind of create a common ground for people to start um, thinking about these issues and sort of uh, creates a recognition of their consequences. And so, uh, you know, which, which goes beyond... Uh, in a way, the divisions of caste and class. Although, I mean, it's I again, it's uh, quite important, I think, to emphasize that uh, you know, 
if if a land-owning farming family, for instance, uh, has a member who gets cancer, they are able, they 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 are then going to you know sell a bit of their land and try to access private treatment, uh, and that option is not really open for um, someone who comes from a landless community and has been working in those fields and has been as much a part of the Green Revolution story. Um, but it's quite interesting to uh, kind of put this, put those two statistics together, which is that you know Punjab is often cited as a site of like high productivity, uh, etc. And on the other hand, it also has the highest ex- uh, private expenditure on um, medical bills in the country. Uh, which sort of tells you something, but uh, but I think the issue that you bring up uh, around mobilization uh, and I think health is one of those uh, ways of mobilizing around these issues uh, that can kind of build these more transgressive um, solidarities. Yeah, um, thanks. Divya, for all that, I, I always think of your work and the slow violence of of and the effects of pesticides and for the farmers that you're working on and how it connects to the kinds of um, what I call premature disability and that's thinking of Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work on premature death um, as as a way to understand racism, but I think there's one way to think about this, especially in the current moment, right? And it connects back to all of the things that y'all were talking about in the ways that monocultures and our industrial ag system sort of forecloses alternatives um, or ignores those alternatives. Those alternatives have, have persisted, um, but what what monoculture and industrial agriculture has created is, is so linked to the kinds of um, crises we see today with uh, COVID-19, right? And um, Rob Wallace's work speaks to that, right? The role of industrial agriculture in sort of producing um, uh, COVID-19 or other big uh, viruses, but on, and on a global scale. Um, but I also think about how people are using, you know, for good and for bad, there are many, there are struggles over how we view and understand essential work um, in this moment. And so we have like the, um, USDA side uh, and working with the current administration to to deem poultry workers and animal processing workers as essential and therefore they require to risk their lives every day, right? But I think um, social movements and particularly labor folks, um, alt-labor folks, the Southern Workers Assembly is one group I'm thinking of, um, they're really mobilizing to think about, okay, what does this moment and the deeming of these people as essential, meaning essential that, they're so essential that they're, they should risk their lives for the rest of us, tell us about the role of their work in our society, right? And also what sorts of openings are there to rethink um, the structure of our healthcare system? Um, I also think of this, of Whitney Pirtle's work, Pirtle's work, she's at UC Merced and she wrote this really beautiful and crisp piece about how racial capitalism shapes um, COVID related deaths, right, uh, in this moment. And we saw in the Mississippi Delta, right at the start at the out, start of the outbreak, uh, three quarters of the f- folks dying were Black people, right? And so thinking about thinking about how racial capitalism really shapes pre- shapes premature death in that way, um, 
but also the kinds of a questioning of how we frame those deaths, right? So she's really challenging how we view quote unquote comorbidities, right? As, as expressions of this broader network of, of anti-life making activity as Barbara kind of, I think said it earlier, right? Um, and then to flip that is to think about what are the, what are the life making activities that are happening um, in response to this moment, but also outside of it. And I think of, of people's struggles around land and this is happening in the US South is happening around the country and around the world. Um, but I think of a few folks in particular in Mississippi, um, there's some farmers, black farmers down there who are reclaiming land. I know Khadija, you shared that article about Melvin Davis and LaCurtis Reels in I think North Carolina or South Carolina, right? And these struggles over land um, as a way to, to really fight against um, premature deaths are like, are, go as far back as uh, the movements for abolition um, in the emancipation South, right? And I mean, I, maybe this is too broad a way of thinking, but I, I think that that's one way to flip this um, sort of the ways in which COVID-19 is really killing people and particular people but then what are the solutions to that? What are the long-term solutions to that? What are the solutions that people have been fighting for for uh, centuries really? <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it's about another way of living and world-making that doesn't kill us, <laughs> that doesn't, you know, that doesn't um, place people's lives on a, a hierarchy and a scale in which some people are valued and others are not. Um... So yeah, in in uh, I would like to broaden the discussion still more here, uh, like in relation to your question earlier about deficit thinking and disability, and also include like the non-human here, like in a way like the food system of the anti-life uh, making activities is kind of based of. Uh, deficit thinking in terms of what plants and animals are doing. For example, if you take like uh, in Belgium now, we have researchers that are uh, working on trees to um, to alter their lignin and lignin in a tree is what makes a tree standing and it's what uh, makes a tree be able to fight against diseases and so on. And so they think like the lignin is a problem in the performance of the tree in industrial processes. So what if we change this lignin to make it more easily processable uh, for industry? And so the way that the researchers in that case are looking at trees as is happening with with other plants is like they have a problem, right? And so we're going to alter this uh, this life in order to make them into something different that's better able to participate or that's more performant uh, in in industrial uh, processes so we are looking in a way at at life as something that is like um, disabled and that need to be um, altered by taking away the agency of nature itself so instead of having like these trees and plants uh, adapting to their natural uh, or to their environments, so we're going to try to intervene and to make them into something like a top sport uh, model or something in which you're going to have super plants and super trees, but which are completely uh, disconnected from their environment. 
So also there you see this uh, deficit thinking in a very different way. No, a thousand percent. I mean, some of this stuff is so tragic comic. Like when the techno solutionists start dealing with food, I mean, because maybe the, the most superficial but also profound thing is like I was thinking about, I know you were talking about earlier, the cheap meat that they're trying to push onto poor people and people in prisons. But I remember there was this NGO product uh, project where they were trying to make something similar to Soylent, but it was like this peanut butter super paste that they wanted to use to address uh, food security issues in West and Central Africa. And like, long story short, it failed because like, who wants to have this like powdery peanut paste out of like a Gogurt tube? Like that was a hard sell. And just some of the stuff is just so profoundly removed from, I don't know, the human experience in relationship to land and to, to eating. They are kind of the poster child of the industry that you were referring earlier, like uh, as with the, with the mice, no? Like the classic example would be like uh, golden rice, uh, where they're going to fight uh, vitamin deficiency uh, in children's diet by um, genetically modifying rice instead of thinking uh, why is there um, vit vitamin deficiency in this children's diet. So it's like total... Yeah, I would say it's like an absurd way uh, of reasoning, but it um, it sells from a P PR uh, perspective. Well, also part of the irony of the Kevin Esfel, um research on, on these trying to push the Martha's Vineyard people to accept these uh, genetically modified knockout mice is that people were like, well, it's a whole ecosystem. So it's not just a question, because there we're arguing we're only altering one variable, this one species of the many, many species on Martha's Vineyard. But like, what then is going to be the impact on all the other life forms? Because, you know, we're all deeply interdependent, inter interdependent. And so there's no way that you just change something in isolation. So it's incredibly wrong to change the lag end of the tree is kind of my instinctual reaction. But what's going to be the impact on the, on the larger ecosystem? Yeah, but those questions are not really being asked. No, it's what uh, Divya was talking about earlier, also as technologies of control. No, it's it's based in a in a in a reductionist logic and like the way of understanding life and thinking that if you intervene in one little piece, like it doesn't necessarily have an impact on on other uh, processes, even within the same organism. We don't know what is the was it what's going to be the longer term impact but that's like a question which it doesn't really need to be asked from that perspective because then again if a problem comes up there will be a new uh, technofix solution no the classic example would be like the the early generation of uh, of soy and corn which were uh, modified to be uh, resistance against roundup so which means that like um, you alter the plants in a way that you can use these herbicides uh, and without with killing everything without uh, without the crop you want to kill. And so what they saw after a while is that like the the weeds that they were supposed to eliminate they became resistant uh, again uh, against this herbicide themselves. So then it's like but that's you know so then they had to add more pesticides which is great for corporations because they are selling more uh, of of uh, of that pesticide and then it's like it's not considered a problem because then they're gonna develop a new product which uh, would then again be able to eradicate the new uh, weeds so it's like it's um, it's not considered i mean the other you know 
I feel like there's still a lot of ground for us to cover. But the other question that I have specifically about um, academia and disability, which, you know, I would like all of you to speak to, but was kind of inspired, Barbara, by a lot of your work and thinking about scholar activism. And does it amount to something where it's like, a, um, uh, what's the word that you use uh, the of resources? Is it just a question of like siphoning the resources from the university into marginalized groups and social activism? Is it bringing theoretical frameworks? Does it even make sense to think about it like that? Because a lot of these co coalitions um, only integrate people on the level of organization and a lot of researchers are coming just as individuals. And so the reason why I, I, I'm thinking about that is my experience of within academia and talking about disability is that it often amounts to either A, having an ASL interpreter at a Zoom webinar, or B, kind of like on the list of things that you say, like, you know, I'm anti-racist and, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter and no human being is illegal. You also say like, you know, I'm against ableism, but I don't see like a lot of um, integration of like, I don't know, um, even like crypt design or kind of disability as a way of understanding the world and like meaning making within this. And so I'm just wondering if maybe you could respond to that and this concept of like scholar activist, activist scholar, um, and how you see it playing out in your work. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I would say like, the, like it's obviously not an either or question, but like right now there is so much uh, money being poured into innovation and, and research. Like for example, the, in the European Union, there's a lot of, uh, of, of resources, public resources also being channeled into that. So I think part of our work has to be to channel uh, that money into into other places. So that's uh, definitely um, one key thing. But then the, the, the way I try to think about uh, scholar activism is like um, just thinking about research as a practice, like as farming is a practice, as like so many practices. And so thinking about like how can we build uh, alliances and work together towards uh, um, like different worlds by by building bridges between these these different practices so for me like uh, yeah that's how I would would see scholar activism I think um, yeah maybe like uh, one of the things that uh, you mentioned in the early conversation that we had like was like slow science and that's maybe an interesting connection to like slow food uh, with all its problems. It's also interesting, like slow food in the end, it's about uh, recreating connections between eaters and, and producers of food. And so uh, slow science is also about uh, the quality of, uh, of relations between uh, different people that are affect affected by the things that uh, science scientists are doing. So how can we reimagine um, and rebuild these connections between uh, working working together uh, with activists, scholars, uh, and anybody else who is concerned about a certain question? And so I think that's that's what slow science is about. Carrie, do you do you see these kinds of things in in the American South? Right, like you have these kinds of worker collectives that I think are doing really incredible work, but I I actually don't know that much about where this intersects with academia. Um, and then beyond that, kind of these like transnational imaginings of the American South framed within the broader global South. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think about this on a few different scales, right? Like, I think Barbara's point about the relationships we build across and outside of academia are central, but it's also, I mean, I think about Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work all the time. I mean, she's always in my head um, and reminding that us of our great sort of opportunity as scholars, as people who with the time and space to really think expansively and deeply about um, our, this particular social problem that we're fixated on, right? Our burning questions. Um, so when I think about this in relation to my work uh, and the poultry industry, I mean, we could, I'll, I'll give a specific example, right? So so many people think about the shitty labor within this uh, industry, how, how people's bodies are torn down, um, how terrible it is for everyone who works there, how disabling it is for everyone who works there, right? And um, the response to that is usually, well, let's just fix it with uh, uh, new forms of automation, right? And so I actually met with several people at Cornell who were developing this glove that was ergonomically, uh, was gonna kind of trace uh, the ergonomic movements of a, a worker on the line to think about how to make those movements um, more efficient, but also- It's so Cornell. Yeah, yeah, it's the fix. It's the just fix. so Cornell. Um, I feel like I know all of these people. <laughs> Uh, yeah, maybe I should, maybe I uh, sold them out. By no, 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 no. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Let's burn some bridges. It's fine. But it's so it's 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 viewed as this humanitarian project. It's viewed it'll save workers and it'll eventually displace them because no one wants to work in a poultry plant, right? But that fix, it, it's almost. I mean, it's connected to this conversation about understanding broader ecologies, right? That one solution doesn't change the doesn't change. Um, the way we produce chicken. It won't change and will likely speed up the amount of birds we're killing every day. And the larger sort of restructuring of rural America because of that need to fuel 200,000 birds per plant per day, right? And so I think that those kinds of um, solutions are short-sighted, but but also as as people who consider ourselves like academics who are connected to to working people and, and act, maybe activist academics right hopefully we're able to study and to see the you know the broader impacts of of reformist sort of reforms and people often think about that in terms of abolition and prison abolition but can we also think about that in terms of labor in terms of labor movements and actually learn from people and this is why i think the black radical tradition is so important to how i think about the world the work of folks like Du Bois, but also people like Jimmy Boggs, right? Who's, who are able to see, like, it's not about improving or making these incremental changes to the to um, our conditions of work, right? It's not about better wages or slowing line speeds alone. Like those things can be in, in the service of broader struggles for liberation, but Jimmy Boggs says a job ain't the answer, right? And so it's, it's about building these broader, sort of more capacious ways of moving and acting and being that that I think people inside and outside the academy can do. Um, but on another scale, like this is this, the second level I think about these things is that the university is not really, uh, and y'all know this, right, is not the place, um, doesn't support that kind of work, right? It actively resists this kind of work. It actively resists the relationships to people outside of this intellectual or academic sphere. It actively is an anti sort of working class project. 
Um, the role of the university is often to pluck people out of their communities and even to uphold um, quote unquote diversity in a way that severs your relationships to home, to community, to um, and particularly to working class uh, black and brown communities, right? And so to resist that work is, is the harder challenge and a more courageous kind of work that I think some people do and, and some people are able to navigate it. I don't know if that's necessarily something I'm going to be able to do, but we'll see. I mean, I mean, y'all, I think Khadija, we talked about this in our first meeting, but um, I don't think we should be under any sort of uh, a, a presumption that the university is going to be a site of liberation, right? Um, we have to think outside of it and with folks who are who are doing that work on the ground. And in the South, you know, I'm sure y'all have talked to folks or know about Cooperation Jackson, the work that they're doing there. I mentioned the Southern Workers Assembly, um, but those those movements are, and that work and organizing is so place-based, right? Um, and so even, even in my relationship to the South has been so greatly transformed by being up here in this like very Northern liberal city. Um, so I have to, I think about that all the time. Like, how do I, how do I connect to those movements how do I continue to stay connected to those movements and think with them um, being so far from them, right? And I'm sure Divya is thinking about that too with her work. Um, I'll stop talking now, <laughs> see if Divya has stuff to say, but there's layers to it, right? And um, I think it's possible to do transformative work as scholar activists, but we can't like place the priority of our identities and our relationships within the university. And that might mean we get pushed out. Uh, thanks. I mean, that, that, that gives me a lot to think about, actually, both what you, you've been saying and Barbara as well. Uh, but I do, yeah, I do think, I think that this works at different levels. And, you know, the idea of um, research as practice, uh, for me at least, has been one of those. So, you know, when you're kind of inhabiting the spaces and working with movements instead of working, you know, doing research on them, etc., is kind of key and uh, in a in a more collaborative way, but also kind of helping build connections in any way that that enables their work um, a little bit more. But I think the reverse of that is quite important, which is the university spaces that we occupy. Um, and, you know, the sum of the logics by which knowledge is produced in the university is quite complicit in actually enacting some of the structures that a lot of the movements that we are talking about are trying to contest in the first place. So, so pushing those boundaries in whatever way possible within the university, I think, needs to be a part of the scholar activist work. And I think one of the additional things that I'm want to talk about and uh, 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 to add to what Carrie and Barbara have said is, uh, which is something I've been thinking about a lot, which is teaching as a side of, um, you know, introducing a different kind of, uh, or, a, uh, or a logic that uh, challenging this logic of control and particularly uh, you know, alternative ways of thinking about knowledge or, you know, the kinds of knowledges that are being produced outside of academia by uh, social struggles and people 
uh, farming communities, for instance, through their own practices, etc. How do we kind of uh, introduce those modes of knowledge within the university set up through teaching, etc., um, as legitimate ways of knowing the world and acting on it, um, which can be quite... Uh, challenging i mean just in terms of the food conversation we've been having you know the compartmentalizing logic of plant sciences being different than soils and you know all of them kind of not speaking to each other things that are quite obvious to farmers and agroecology activists who work on the ground that these things are relational and one thing has cascading impacts on another and yet somehow uh, that sort of uh, understanding seems to have gone out of our uh, university spaces and so uh, I teach these modules on introduction to sustainability which has you know students that come from very different discipline disciplinary backgrounds so I mean just just kind of start thinking again in those relational terms uh, in itself I think is kind of a very useful project within the university, if if that makes sense. I I think it does, and I think you know, I I'm helping teach this kind of like um, this class that involves a lot of you know digital electronics and soldering and all of these things that that you have to do remotely all of a sudden because of COVID. And I've, I've struggled with this, right? It's, it's been very hard. Um, and I can only imagine that like all these tools that we have for, for within the university system, whether it's Zoom or Canvas or whatever these things might be, for, for trying to teach things remotely, um, privilege certain ways of knowing and privilege certain uh, forms of teaching. And you know, I think it's I think it's hard for me because the stuff I'm I'm doing involves some of this like hands-on physic physical uh, instruction, and I'm I'm imagining when we start talking about other ways of knowing, other forms of knowledge production, some of which are very place-based, some of which are very relational, that we're we're really failing on an on an instructional level to, or or at least on on a, the level of having the tools to teach these things remotely. I don't know if, if you guys feel the same way about that. I, I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, I guess, like, even, be, like, before COVID, like, one of the projects I was involved with, uh, together with Divya, is, like, to transform uh, master programs into online distance learning programs. And so seeing that from the inside is kind of, like... It raises a lot of questions uh, about that. For example, if you think about experience-based learning or like, but generally like the whole conversation we, we've been having is partly is about like, um, like productivism, no? Productivism in, in food. And there what you see like happening through this online distance learning platforms is like, increasing productivism within academia in relation to teaching and so yeah it's like doing again it's not maybe there are there are other ways of going about it but it would need to give you the space to think about it to develop it and instead what we see happening is like 
how this uh, online learning is pushing for standardization in 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 teaching and learning. So I'm not very optimistic uh, in that in that regard. It's not as if, like for example, myself, I've been trained as an engineer. It's like in engineering education, it's not as if uh, it was great when it was a uh, uh, presential uh, learning in the terms of, um, yeah, like the total absence of, of positionality, the total absence of uh, learning uh, in relational ways. But it seems like that the, the move towards the, the online learning is like only facilitating that. Uh, sort of teaching young people about um, or in ways that is about uh, knowing from nowhere, no? Like this this very universalistic uh, process. But maybe, I don't know, maybe Carrie, you have different experiences here. Yeah, I guess um, I, I would want to share. So there's some work being done in Mississippi um, out of some of the in relation to some of the universities and some of um, uh, with people incarcerated currently. So uh, I don't know if y'all have heard of this group, this, this study and struggle um, is formed by some prison abolitionists and folks. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. thanks, Khadija. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I think, I mean, that's one way technology, I've been able to stay like reading with this group because of Zoom <laughs> or whatever platform they use, WebEx. Or, but I, I do think um, that's one attempt, one example of, of folks really thinking deeply about not only, because I think, I, quote unquote activists, right, are always mobilizing around what do we do? What's the problem? What do we do to solve it? What's the problem? What do we do to solve it? And there's there's definitely utility in that. But I think this group is thinking I more expansively, right? And about what was what would liberation look like? Um, why do we need both struggle, right? The acts, the doing, the but also the thinking. What does study mean for our movements? Um, and what does study mean for people inside? What does study mean for people inside with people outside, right? And I think that's a way to transform how we think of our role as people within universities, right? Um, and to really put the public back in public university, uh, as Grace Lee Boggs says, you know, put the neighbor back in the neighborhood, uh, put the neighbor back in the hood, right? And the, those kinds of things I think are, they seem really simple and fluffy, but I think, um, the kinds of logics that we're talking about that shape our food system, uh, racial capitalist logics, right, are, are shaping our relationships um, to knowledge are, and shaping our relationships to each other in ways that this group, I think, is pushing back. And, and you know, there's also the Saturday Free School in Philly um, that is founded by Anthony Montero, who was kicked out of Temple, um, or not kicked out, but, you know, but he, he was pushed out of Temple and he started this free, open, school that's intergenerational that meets every Saturday and they deeply study together. So they re read Black Reconstruction, they read James Baldwin, they read Dr. King, they read Gandhi. Um, they're thinking about uh, uh, the Black radical tradition in relation to um, internationalist movements, right? And so I think that that kind of work is so profound and so unique in a society in which we're all sort of pitted against each other to struggle, struggle, struggle for the American dream in a way. And that's been exported globally, right? That that logic, but to push back against it, to resist, it is happening. It's just, it's just kind of hard to find. No, thank you for that. Um, 
You know, it's interesting. I mean, one one instinctual rea- reaction to the question of the university is we had <clears throat> poet Joshua Bennett on a couple of weeks ago, and he's like, you know, sometimes academia is not that great. Like, there's a lot of other forms, and like, why do we focus on the structure? But I think there's an interesting parallel between incarceration and the academy, or even like uh, public schools K through 12 level, and that they're both sites of discipline and control, obviously stratified very differently depending on which like socioeconomic racial group that you're a part of. Um, but they're both, they both entail a level of stability. And so like one of my questions is that, you know, what does, maybe this plays out differently in rural areas. And my question maybe is shaped by my experience of, you know, living and growing up in, in New York city. But like for most of my peers that are non-college graduates, I think the, like the most consistent job may be a Starbucks, but generally people have jobs for a very short time. You know, not only have unions been dismantled, um, but they also, like with all this just-in-time hiring, people's relationship to labor is so precarious, even though maybe the poultry workers is not the same thing as a gig um, gig economy in the same way that like working for Uber is. But like, what are the forms and what does it mean to organize um, around food justice in for me, maybe this is a very Northern question. Like, I don't know if this plays out the same in rural India or parts of the rural South, but it feels like people don't have a real connection to their job. Like, a, a, especially for like working class, lower working class people, a lot of them, you know, it's very tenuous. Yeah, Khadija, I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, um, so, you know, the poultry used to be somewhat a reliable job and and there are women who remain in those plants who have worked there for 20, 30 years. Um, There are generations of people tied to the plant, but I think in the last uh, 25, 30 years, you know, that, that job, the transition of that job or the role that that job has played in people's lives has shifted drastically and that's tied to the speed ups, right? And tied to the amount of turnover um, within those places. And so, yeah, I don't think that workers are necessarily proud to be working in the plant. Um, And I think lots of, I think that's the struggle with organizing today is is there's like an old school labor way to think about organizing as people having pride in their work um, and people being able to stay for decades and decades. And that works for some industries, right? But when we see manufacturing gutted in this country, those kinds of identities or associations with a union and with labor, I think are fragmented. Um, And so what I think that, you know, what we can learn from the teachers movement, uh, teacher strikes in Chicago, um, but also from poultry worker strikes back in the the 70s and 80s, um, led by mostly women, black women in parts of the rural South is that you know, there, there were demands, not just around the wage, but about, about childcare, about healthcare, about paid sick time, all these things that I think extend to people's lives beyond work because their lives do not revolve around work, you know? Um, and so how do we build movements? How does actually labor, I think, learn from um, movements for prison abolition, uh, movements for um, healthcare, and um, sort of even back to like black feminist movements around um, around childcare, right? How do we learn from those and build something much broader? And I think that's those conversations are happening in some of the abolitionist movements that we see today and especially in, in theorizing abolition, right? But how we make it happen in this moment is a different question. 
Um, and to me, I think lots of people think about the, uh, all the mutual aid work. And, and while I think those mobilizations are, are essential, especially given the sort of precarity that has been exacerbated with COVID-19, I'm also thinking, how do we scale those things up, right, um, to places, because they may be like growing and huge in, in Seattle and New York, um, but what about rural parts of the Delta, right? What about rural North Georgia? I, you know, those movements are harder to come by. So I think we also need a people-centered state to respond, um, you know, to all the, the ways <laughs> our lives are being uh, sort of dismantled. And, and I'll say one more thing to try to like speak back to the kinds of knowledge or things that I learned from women who worked in the plant, right? There were all sorts of acts of love and care that never benefited <laughs> a person individually, right? And um, there are all sorts of networks of care that extended well beyond the plant um, that I saw happening every single day that I got to be a part of, right? And, and so how do we then like think about the home space differently, think about kinship and family differently um, in a way that's supported um, by the state or across our society so that people aren't just sort of scrapping those lives together um, in, in more marginal ways, but are actually supported to do so. Um, yeah. It, it really makes me think of, oh, sorry, I didn't want to go, no, ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was actually just going to bring it to you and talk about some of your work on kind of relational approaches to poverty. And then also, you know, I really loved uh, watching these videos of people singing about how bad IR8 is and these kinds of, sorry, the IR8 rice variety. <laughs> it just like, it made the male farmer drink poison and like all of these ways that, that it's terrible. And these, these kinds of relational approaches that occur in the field, that occur in rural spaces that I think don't, are like maybe aren't being sufficiently examined by, by kind of a lot of, you know, urban elites or, or urban academics or kinds of people who are, you know, super isolated from these, these ways of knowing. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, if you just want to respond to, to what Carrie said, but. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually that's in this idea of relationality. I mean, I, I'll speak to what you said and what Carrie was saying uh, sort of together, because I was just thinking about, you know, this idea of precarity and how that shapes political agency. Um, um, and, you know, in some ways, precariousness has always been a part of uh, farming communities in the global south. So it's it's it, in a way, it's not new. Uh, but what's but I think what the way that plays out today, uh, particularly in terms of organizing, um, which makes it quite challenging, particularly with laboring communities who who do, um, you know, see the city and the urban space as the site of uh, emancipation, because they don't really um, feel like they have the agency within the rural and the agrarian spaces uh, to organize in ways that would change uh, things dramatically. So, you know, the movements for agroecological sustainability, for instance, have some traction with landowning farmers who can make decisions to some extent uh, to do things differently. Um, uh, but, uh, but for landless workers, uh, 
that's a that's a very different relationship uh, with that space um and so even in terms of i mean to take an take an example the one of the ways in which the movement sort of tries to uh, uh, to to mobilize workers is to say you know uh that they all have some little bits of land in their homestead and to grow vegetables, et cetera, for their own home consumption, which is healthy, which means, you know, you don't have to buy um, chemically um, infused sort of things on the market, et cetera. And of course, the the question that comes up for women workers in particular is uh, that of time. you know, if you're if you're going to work in the fields and then uh, have all these other things to do, where is the time to kind of uh, start making that happen? And for men in the areas that I've been working in, you know, for the younger generation specifically, uh, dealing with uh, issues of uh, sort of caste oppression, etc., which have been a part of um, um, agricultural sort of um, structuring. Uh, both before and after the green revolution um, it's in a way it's it's easier for them to think about trying to find a better way of living in the cities and that's that's a that's a kind of difficult thing to think about in terms of what does then organizing for food justice uh, mean uh, from the vantage point of um, laboring communities and so I think you know the and the video that you're referring to and the songs for instance about IR8 uh, and that's a woman worker who uh, who is from a landless um uh household uh, and so her memory of uh, you know that seed has nothing to do with um the kinds of narratives that you get from farmers who were at least initially excited by the prospect of this high yielding seed variety that has come in to the village, uh, whereas for workers like her, uh, you know, it eventually meant um, less work with mechanization, with more uncertainty. Um, and and for some of the men who were actually doing the spraying of pesticides, etc., it had uh, severe consequences, etc., for their health. Um, so all of those kinds of memories of that transformation, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, agroecology movements do sort of invoke the past to say, you know, we have a lot to learn from our past and the way we used to do things and grow food, etc. But that past means quite, you know, very different things for uh, uh, people who come from uh, uh, from the oppressed castes and uh, in those contexts. So. Um, so I mean I think it's so going back to this question of then um, relationality and you know thinking about the rural the thinking about the rural necessitates us thinking about the rural urban connection which in a way is quite um, central to thinking about ideas of cheap food and you know who is producing at whose expense, but also in terms of where do we where do we go from here? Um, so, for instance, the question of land redistribution has disappeared from uh, from the political agenda completely in terms of uh, thinking about agroecological sustainability. 
because, uh, you know, we're thinking about it in terms of, okay, how do we change our practices? What kind of different cropping systems do we move to, et cetera? Uh, but, the, but the question of land there, in a way, is fundamental. And, you know, what happens when these workers move to the cities uh, and then are uh, living um, in, in slums with sort of poor infrastructure, et cetera? Uh, again, then they become uh, the people in whose names the idea of cheap food is justified. Uh, so in a way, it sort of comes uh, full circle. Yeah, and and maybe as a as a last comment on on, on like what what Divya is just saying and 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 access to land and urban rural connections that plays out in in so many different ways no but i i would say that within like food sovereignty and um, agroecology movement it's like questions that are slowly like emerging or like the importance being seen for example if you um if you take the the question of access to land in a very different uh, context uh, like in in europe and if you connect it like to things that like uh Kerry was saying uh, earlier about uh, autonomy and and relations. If you think about uh, and what we started this, the discussion with, no, with meat. If if you think about farmers' movement uh, in Belgium, they are some of them. They are working towards creating grazing autonomy, um, which simply means like going back to farms where actually you have. Uh, you can feed the animals with what you're able to grow around. And so to reduce the amount of animals you have on a, far, uh, on a farm to, to that amount. But so things such as grazing autonomy like uh, and, and creating different forms of, uh, of, of uh, relations and dependency, they, they obviously they, they require access to land while um, land in a very urbanized, uh, context of Western Europe, it's like the the prices that are currently going for farmland. They are mainly defined by other land uses, and they are defined by uh, rich people that want to uh, rent land around the city for putting horses. So, like totally different questions and the type than what the what Divya is is talking about, but showing the importance of putting the question of land like central to uh, thinking about how we can reimagine uh, food systems. Yeah, I just I I think this is such a brilliant conversation. Um, and Divya, the point you posed about you know it's not just about how we farm, but who farms and and where they farm, right? And every and who owns the ability or has the ability to farm, right? And um, I think so much, I mean, not to hark so much on the past, but thinking about rep the, the role of reparations and the promise of, of land um, in, in emancipation, right? And that unfulfilled promise that continues to today and has obviously lasting effects um, where I think that the movement for reparations today is, is so central and land in that sort of equation is so necessary for a transformation of our entire uh, society and way of being in the U.S. and hope and with effects globally, I would think. Um, but you know, I'm thinking about 
people often think of um, Sherman and 40 acres and a mule and you know, folks have been unearthing sort of why that actually happened. And Du Bois talks about why that actually happened because of a meeting of um, of 20 freedmen in uh, Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, to demand, <laughs> to make those sorts of demands. And I think too of, of people I, I've met through study and struggle who are farming in uh, Mississippi outside of Starkville on TKO farms. And you know, we talk about this question of land and our relationship to land in, in those reading groups. And um, Kevin and Teresa Irvin Springs, they, you know, they share with us, Black people just want to be left alone to farm. And, and so many people in Mississippi in particular, it's the state with the highest concentration of Black farmers, which is, I think, like 14 or 13 percent of farmers in Mississippi. I mean, it's so low, but that's the highest right around our country. Um, what that tells us about sort of not only it's not only about representation in farming right but the knowledges and approaches to farming that the purpose of farming um, for these folks and for TKO farms you know they hark back to the kinds of um, farm cooperatives that were about growing for one's community and then having maybe a little extra to take to market um, in, in a very different, that farm cooperative looks very different from the white farm cooperatives that emerged in Georgia and that would eventually become the largest chicken producers like Goldkiss, right? And so I think there's, there's both a material relation to land, but also this sort of ideological relation to land that looks very different, but and yet still requires this redistribution that Divya is talking about. No, I think it was excellent. I mean, the stuff that keeps me up at night when I think about land, and I mean, my relationship to land is pretty limited <laughs> growing up. The, like, I'm not a camper. You know, like, I'm I'm like uh, intellectually and morally down with land, but like physically, like, I think I would. I'm so, like, Mary, we're talking so much about um, Gilmore, but I also think about Miriam Kaba. She talks about how we've, part of abolition is that we have to think about how we've been de-skilled from conflict resolution uh techniques and like you know if you're not going to call the police how do you deal with domestic violence how do you deal with those interpersonal issues and so i feel like equally de-skilled in terms of like interaction with the land and that's one part but i just think of that pro publica piece on um black land loss post-reconstruction and kind of like what is the way you know, we're like eight years post Tucker and Wang putting out uh, decolonization is not a metaphor. And people still speak about it metaphorically where this like material being of the land seems so critical. Um, and so that's not really a question, but that's always like my thought is like, how do we, how, how do we, you know, and the, the, like the automatic, like Marxist answer, right. Is that you need state power, but I don't really know, like, what are the even like uh, radical reforms that are required in order to kind of make that possible. Um, given that article highlights how the heirloom law was kind of the method through which a lot of farmer, uh, not farmers, but black landowners lost their land. Yeah, I also, I mean, I think we talked about this in our little pre-meeting and Elan brought up like sourdough and, and like this hipster bougie movement to like make your own bread and go back to the land. And there are movements I've, I've heard like all those people exodusing from uh, New York City, uh, going up to the Hudson Valley and like even new forms of uh, sharecropping being re supposedly reinvented, right? And so there's this romanticization of the land that I think many of us can hold because yeah, maybe we've never had a relationship to land. It's a, something that we've been de-skilled from. Um, but 
you know, I also think um, all of us eat and that's why food is such a, as Divya knows, like through our, our mentor, Phil McMichael, he's always like, food is a, the, the best lens to think about the entire world. Not only the shit that happens, not only the bad things that happen, but also how we reconnect to one another in a transformative way. And so all of us eat, you know, all of us have some relationship to land through food in that way. Um, and, and, you know, I think this is a good com starting conversation to ask those questions and to think about all the people who are already doing that work on the land, transforming their relationship um, to, to food, to, to each other. And ultimately that would require a transformation of how, how our state operates, right? If you think about that article you're talking about, Khadija, and the long history of dispossession um, in our country, but also globally. Um, yeah, you might want to edit that. That was like a little bit of a, a ramble, but I, I think there's just so many important connections here that if we have more time to think about it or brought in different people, right? Like like Teresa and Kevin, like all uh, um, folks from, like Callie and folks from Cooperation Jackson or folks from um, other movements that are really trying to, I'm thinking of some people in Atlanta that have this group, uh, Gangsters to Growers, right? And so I think those folks could be really useful in rethinking this relationship to land um, as well. Yeah, that's great, Carrie. Uh, uh, Maybe an idea for uh, a follow-up. Uh, like, and it's like, I think the, like, thinking about de-skilling and reskilling is like, is not only to land, no one thinking about food, like there is so much of the, the work that the agroecology movements are doing is actually about reskilling, no? reconnecting to land re and, and, and recovering uh, knowledges that uh, we have been lost, that we have lost or that we need to build um, in order to be able to continue to feed ourselves in much better ways than the everything that has been destroyed uh, through cheap food no so like the thinking about skilling in terms of of planting like i have a, a colleague and friend here uh chiara tonagi who would always stress like the importance of like why do we send kids to school and have them learn about mathematics and gymnastics and all of that and and where are the cooking classes where are the growing classes um so yeah skills yeah and i, I mean i think also just on the last note sort of you know thinking about competing uses of land and in 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 a lot of the global south there is still that you know we still kind of have that narrative of uh, or oh, there are vast large populations that are that continue to be dependent on agriculture and we need to somehow uh, move them to the cities and uh, you know very kind of standard uh, development narrative um, uh, that we need to take more and more people out of agriculture into other kinds of jobs whereas we know that all of those other kinds of jobs are uh, precarious and hard to come by so I mean in that sense I think it's not just it food does connect us in many many different ways uh, but also coming back to this question of thinking about land uh, I think does put under the scanner um, not just our food systems but 
you know the current the ways in which our current economies are structured that that depend on uh in a way that extractive form of uh food production which is um concentrated uh and you know in, in countries in the global south of course you have much less a population that is directly engaged in food making in a way so how does that also make it in a way invisible from the political agenda but but again sort of coming back to the pandemic i think at least in the uk uh, you know there's all of been all of this discourse lately around shortage of uh, migrant workers to to work on the farms and um, so so it's it's a moment of crisis in a way that is putting food back into the domain into the political agenda not just in terms of uh, price etc but in terms of actually okay who grows the food and where is it grown and you know that we all need to probably be collectively thinking about it uh, much more than we do Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. This is the We Be Imagining podcast. Please write us at webeimagining at gmail.com. That's webeimagining at gmail.com. Um, and all of the, the various journal articles, movements, social justice activists that were mentioned in the show, you can find in our show notes. Um, and thank you, Barbara, Carrie, and Divya for coming on the show. It's a wrap. Thank you for having us. It's really great. Thank you. Bye. Yeah.